So Matthew chapter 5, this is verse 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your, only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So, we continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, wrapping up chapter 5. This has been kind of a tough road at times, I would say. This one's not an exception to that rule. Isn't it nice to know we have two whole chapters to go yet on this thing? Like, we're just getting started. The Sermon on the Mount is the gift that keeps on giving. Anyway, we, we've been going through Jesus' commentary on the law, and he keeps repeating this formula, you have heard it said, but I say. And so in some sense, he seems to have placed himself above the law. Not in the usual sense that we mean by that. Uh, when we say someone is above the law, we usually mean that they can break it with impunity, right? Uh, uh, we, we mean people who think that the rules don't apply to them. Uh, that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not disrespecting the law or trashing the law. He said he came to fulfill it, and that's what he's doing. He's not loosening the rules for himself. He's making them stricter for everybody. And he really puts the nail in the coffin of whatever self-righteousness we feel like we have left because he is demanding that we do what is psychologically impossible. He tells us that in order to be God's children... We must love our enemies, and while we're at it, we might as well be perfect too. No big deal. So credit to Jesus for making every lesson just a little bit harder than the week before. Just when you think he can't escalate things, he finds a way. Reverend Green told me this sermon should be easy. I should just go ahead and, you know, what could you possibly add to this anyway? Just tell people to be perfect and pray and go home. I can't do that. Wouldn't be very helpful, and the sermon would be too short even by Phil's standards. So we're going to try to break this down and help us digest it as best we can. And we're going to be talking about neighbors and enemies and the similarities and the differences. Jesus opens this passage again the same way he's been doing by stating what's sort of the accepted wisdom of his day. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, that seems simple enough, maybe even obvious. If that's the conventional wisdom, that almost seems, dare I say, manageable. I could maybe use a little help loving some of my neighbors, but I can agree that that seems like a good goal, and even if I have terrible neighbors, life would definitely be easier if we could all get along. So I can work on doing that one, I guess. Hating my enemies? I don't mind working harder at that either. Um, I probably could be a much more effective hater with a little bit of training and practice. They say haters going to hate. I could probably use some pointers. If anybody knows any haters that provide training, uh, they could steer them my way. 
Um, I'll ask you, how many of you feel like you get along with your neighbors pretty well? Not as many. I have a few nods. and uh, Starting to second-guess yourselves now, aren't you? Now, I get along with mine usually. Um, I don't, you know, I, I like my neighbors. I don't necessarily feel like I need any more neighbors uh, than I currently have. But I do like my neighbors generally, even the eccentric ones. Uh, Allentown, honestly, I, it feels almost like Mayberry, my neighborhood, compared to some places I've lived. But it, it can be hard having neighbors sometimes, too. I've had some strange neighbors in the past. Maybe some of you can relate. But I have spent hours telling my kids stories about some of the craziest neighbors I've ever had. They're fun stories. They remember some of these neighbors, but others date back to my childhood. I had a neighbor who chased uh, a neighborhood kid around with a, with a butcher's knife around and around the car because he had been trying to steal his son's bike. Uh, I, had a, I had another neighbor next door who used to invite me or my brother to dinner when his wife was angry at him so that she couldn't yell at him in front of company. <laughs> this was the same neighbor that used to fire a shotgun in the air on his porch in Philly for New Year's Day. I had one neighbor who had their, they had their mother-in-law, his mother-in-law was living with them, and her cooking was so grotesque, so disgusting that we had to close all of the windows in summer when she made dinner. And we had no air conditioning on because my mom is Swedish and they make the Scots look like big spenders. So just hot and smelly. Uh, there was a lady I had uh, when we lived way back in, in Belfont who would lock her bratty son out in the cold of winter as a punishment because he was a whiner. That was interesting. Uh, we had another guy in that neighborhood who chased his wife, uh, trying to kill her until she hid in our kitchen. That's how we ended up with a shotgun. Uh, I've had several crabby ladies who hated all the kids in the neighborhood. I think every neighborhood has someone like that. We had one neighbor that used to throw huge parties, and he would get drunk, and once he was drunk, he would threaten to kill himself. We had a neighbor who had Catholic dogs, and by that I mean he refused to get them fixed, and so... They had puppies every other month, and they were routinely undernourished and would routinely die, and they were covered in fleas. I have had neighbors who were hoarders, paranoid maniacs, domestically violent, alcoholics, drug addicts, musicians, and sometimes a combination of the above. And yet, oddly enough, I've gotten along with most of these people. In a sense, I've even loved them, kind of, within reason. And even so, I have had some neighbors that I never learned to like and was happy to leave behind when we moved. You learn to tolerate some people as much as possible, but that's about as far as you can get. Now, some of them you just avoid because that's easier, but the point is, is that neighbors are, are complicated things. Unless you don't have any, like the, the Harleys on their one side, that works out too. But, you know, uh, neighbors are complicated. It's a tough relationship because it's so close by definition. Uh, I am convinced that the reason cities tend to be more violent places compared to the country is largely because everyone is so close to each other and you can't avoid people. And little irritations start to get to you the closer you are. It's why you can name every annoying little detail about your spouse, let's say, right? You'd see it all the time and nothing looks better under a microscope. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. 
familiarity breeds contempt. But I think we need to define terms because neighbor in this passage isn't being used in the way necessarily that I'm using it, right? When I hear neighbor, I think the people who live on my block, or at least I'll say within three doors of me. And even within that definition, I only consider some of them my neighbors. If I call someone my neighbor, I not only mean that they live nearby, but that I know them and like them, okay? So I take ownership of them. They're my neighbors, okay? If I don't know them very well, or I don't like them very much, they become the neighbor. See? I don't know. Am I the only one who makes this distinction in how I talk about my people? I don't know. I keep a mental hierarchy of my neighbors. Now, the Greek word literally means somebody nearby. It is a neighbor, just like in English, but it's also kind of open-ended as it is in English. So it's worth taking some time to define our terms. Of course, this whole passage is defining neighbor more broadly than we typically do, even in the conventional wisdom of verse 43. It's assumed as much, because uh, they get this idea of loving your neighbor from the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if I'm required to love my neighbor and I want to know who my neighbor is, we can take from that commandment in Leviticus that in the original form of this law, neighbor was synonymous with the sons of your own people, i.e. your countrymen. So your neighbor was your fellow Israelite, and love in that instance meant not taking vengeance or holding a grudge, which is what we were talking about last week. So the teachers of the law in Jesus' day were reaffirming that verse. You've got to love your neighbor, and that applies to all your fellow Jews, including the hoarders and the cat lady and the neighborhood drunks and everything else, right? But that's where you draw the line. You've got to love your fellow Jews, but everyone else can go play in traffic. Foreigners, Romans, Greeks, you can take or leave them. And they applied this logic to Samaritans, too, even though they had... Israelite blood, they're just as much sons of Abraham as the Jews were, genetically speaking. Uh, but when someone asks Jesus in Luke chapter 10, very helpful question in applying and asking this question, who is my neighbor, he asks. Jesus responds with the parable of the good Samaritan, precisely because that would rock their world a little bit. It's a scandalous story because the Samaritans were not considered neighbors. They had split from the mother country, they were heretics, and so naturally the whole neighbor designation surely didn't apply to them, right? Uh, so the teachers of the law, they're not wrong to say that we should love our neighbor, even if they consider it an open question as to who my neighbor is. Loving your neighbor is definitely a biblical idea. Nobody denies that. But the last part of verse 43 is interesting. Uh, the teachers of the law required that you hate your enemy. Now, you can hunt scripture high and low, and you're not going to find that command put in that kind of way anywhere. Uh, just about every point of the law that Jesus has spoken of so far was in the Old Testament somewhere, either word for word or in its essence. But this line is kind of a complete fabrication. Uh, God never said this, and it feels a little bit forced and almost intentionally misconstrued, right? And... Seeing as hating your enemy is pretty much the natural state of affairs, one wonders why this needed to be commanded at all. 
Now, on the other hand, if you spend enough time in the Psalms, you will read passages that we call the imprecatory prayer, similar to what David was praying about Russia last week, right? Uh, Meaning prayers for the destruction of enemies. And that kind of sounds like hating your enemies, and David got away with it. Psalm 26.5, I hate the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. Psalm 31.6, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 113, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Psalm 139, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Oh, so in fairness, one could make an argument that there is some room for hate in your life. Maybe verse 43 is a little simplistic in it, but it's not entirely crazy. So when is it okay to hate? Well, I'll give you a for instance. My kids asked this week when we read this passage, I asked them their thoughts, what are their questions, and this kind of thing, and somebody inevitably says, well, what about Satan? Do we have to love him too while we're loving our enemies? And I would say, no, it doesn't apply there for the same reason that David can boast of hating God's enemies. It's not a personal thing. He doesn't list individual names and people he has a vendetta against. And he's so forgiving and loving towards Saul, even when Saul is a declared enemy of his. But we are called to have the mind of Christ, and Christ has the mind of his Father. And I think that means loving what he loves and also hating what he hates. And God has no love for Satan. And we know this because Jesus didn't die for Satan or for the demons. He died for people. When we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating that he became man. He never became an angel, which means he didn't die for them. There's a reason why Peter says in his first epistle that uh, angels long to look into what God is doing for his people in salvation. They, They can't really fully grasp it because they're not the central characters in the redemption story. So there is room for hate if we hate what God hates. I think that's fair to say. And if anything, I would say that verse 43, while we're looking at it, it, the bigger criticism I would have of it is that it feels less like a command and more like a truism, right? Meaning most of us find loving our brothers and sisters somewhat natural, uh, and we also find hating our enemy kind of natural. So it's kind of like commanding me to eat or something. Like, I don't need any encouragement on that front, right? The Greek word for enemy in its passive form means to be hated. Enemy in Greek could almost be rendered hated one. So why add a command to hate the hated ones? It's redundant. But in any event, if verse 43 is accepted as binding, all I got to do is work on loving my neighbor and hating my enemies better, right? And the pressing question becomes, which is which? And that's the ultimate out, isn't it? If I only have to love my neighbor, all I have to do is figure out who my neighbors are, and then everyone else can go pound sand. Now, as I said, Jesus clarified in Luke 10 that even Samaritans could be considered neighbors, but he specifically says that the Samaritan in that story acted like a neighbor. The Samaritan did. And he says that the guy that asked the question, he says, so go and do the same. But that leaves a lot of wiggle room, doesn't it? Because in fact, that story seems kind of backwards because he uses the Samaritan as the good example and says we should imitate his neighborliness. 
but he doesn't actually specify who our neighbors are in that story. The lesson of the Good Samaritan is to be a good neighbor, which means he doesn't actually answer the guy's question. So the question remains in today's passage, who is my neighbor and who is my enemy? And that's complicated because we have a whole spectrum of people in our lives, not just neighbors and enemies. It's not that simple, is it? We saw how sin has a spectrum, right? And we've seen we've seen that in every single case. But our relationships have a spectrum, too. We have brothers and sisters, some of us, right? Uh, we have friends who are as close as a brother or sister. We have an inner circle of friends. We have extended friends. We have buddies that we drink with. We have Facebook friends. We have friends we could do without, kind of like the show Friends. We have obligatory friends that we wish we could avoid, but that our parents make us hang out with, right? We have people we almost forgot about. We have casual acquaintances, like the regular server at the coffee shop, that kind of thing. And we have people that we don't care for, but that we rarely see. And people that we don't like, but barely know. And people we kind of hate, but might like them better if we knew them better, right? And somewhere at the bottom of that list is bona fide official enemies, that's usually a small number, and even many of our enemies are often seasonal. Our most intense enemies sometimes cross the friendship line, and hence the idea of frenemies. And then, of course, we have the literal neighbors that live physically near us. And Mr. Rogers gave us the idea of the television neighbor. Apparently anybody can be a neighbor just by tuning into PBS. So which of these are my neighbors, and who gets the priority on my love? Because there's an awful lot of people on that list that I don't really love or hate. I just ignore them or just don't care that much. And who do I get to hate? Who are my enemies? That's not always obvious. I'll never forget, I was working a job. And a co-worker of mine I was chatting with suddenly. We were working in a kitchen. She says, you know who your biggest enemy is here is Colleen. She can't stand you. This was news to me. I thought Colleen and I were tight. Uh, thus began the cattiest situation I have ever been involved in. It was not a very manly chapter in my life. But if I'm going to unload my hatred and vitriol on anybody, I'd like to get that right. So those are questions in my mind. If verse 43 is the true summary of the law, that's what I need to know. But once again, Jesus steps in and upends the entire picture in the very next verse. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So love the hateful ones. This sermon keeps getting worse and worse. Um, if last week's command was don't retaliate, that's bad enough. But it's passive, right? I can turn the other cheek or at least avoid hitting back. I can drive that creepy guy down the alney, like I said, and I don't have to like it. I can choose not to make a federal case out of somebody who borrowed something and never returned it. In some ways, it's easier to let these things go because I'm lazy and I'm a coward. So often, I don't retaliate anyway, and on the surface, I can look like I'm turning the other cheek and like I'm being holy about things. But Jesus says that's not enough. You can't just passively refuse to retaliate you have to actively love your enemies. 
And not just long afterward, like forgiving them in the distant future when you already half forgot what happened. We can all do that, and that's fine. But the Greek here has the sense that the offenses are ongoing. Young's literal translation renders this as pray for those persecuting you. Present tense, ongoing. I had a classmate in kindergarten who stole a dollar from me. It's easy to forgive him now. Still remember his name, though. But I'm a grown-up. And a dollar is worth nothing, especially in today's economy, right? So who cares? But in the moment, my mother had told me not to lose this dollar. In the moment, I was steaming and ashamed. And, you know, when the offense is in progress, I want it to stop first. We can talk about forgiveness later, after an apology and things have been, you know, we've made amends. How am I supposed to forgive someone while they're attacking me? Shouldn't the dust have to settle first? Well, not according to Jesus, which seems terribly impractical. But this commandment obliterates the questions I've been asking. It's in our nature to parse out the particulars and to do word studies to figure out exactly who our neighbors and enemies are so that we can see where the loopholes are, right? But Jesus tosses it all aside. Defining your neighbors and enemies is irrelevant if I have to love them regardless. My whole spectrum of friendship doesn't matter. You have to love everyone, even the ones you hate. Now, I want to talk about what this verse doesn't mean. Because it doesn't mean that you can't have variation within your friendships, levels of friendship, and some people that you're closer to than others. Jesus had many disciples that followed him around, but only 12 were in his inner circle. And even within that group, three of them, Peter, James, and John, were his closest companions, the inner, inner circle. So I think it is human to have some relationships that take priority. Why? Because you're not God. So your resources and your time and your energy are limited. You can't be Jesus for everybody, and even Jesus, in his humanity, didn't try to make everybody his best friend. Doesn't work that way. So I can love all of you more than any other church, most of you, but I don't love any of you in the same way that I love my wife and kids, right? Loving everyone doesn't mean you love them all in the same way or to the same extent. You're not infinite, so you can't do what God does. So this command does not mean that you owe everyone the same level of attention, just to clarify that. But it also doesn't mean that you can't have enemies. In fact, Jesus is assuming that you absolutely can and will and do have enemies, he doesn't command us not to have enemies because that's not reality. Some people you'll meet will say, I have no enemies, but that's just either stupid, dishonest, or naive. You can't even choose which enemies you have. Like that lady I worked with, she had declared war on me and I didn't even know there was a war going on, you know? So Jesus is not expecting us to make everyone our friend and neighbor, right? He's expecting us to treat them like our friend and neighbor by loving them. Which brings about another point, and that's that love is an action, not a feeling. 
You've probably heard that before, but it's worth reminding you. Because Jesus is not commanding you to make your enemies into friends. But he's also not commanding you to have the warm fuzzies about them either. The obligation is to love, not to feel love. Now, our culture can't understand this because we think of everything in terms of feelings, and that bleeds into the church. I don't think we understand it here either. We pay it lip service in the church, but we're not really sure what it should look like. But Jesus says to treat those you hate as if you love them. Vodi Bakum is one of my favorite preachers, and he was talking about loving people when the feeling isn't there. He was speaking specifically about marriage. He says, you know, I always tell men, go home and love your wife. And they'll say, you don't understand, we're not in love anymore. He said, I didn't ask you to be in love. I said, go home and love your wife. He said, but I don't feel like that way anymore. Okay, well, the Bible says love your neighbor. She's your closest neighbor. Go home and love her. No, 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 I moved out. We live apart now. Okay, well, Jesus says the world would know his disciples by how we love each other, so love her as a sister in Christ. Well, I don't know if she's even a Christian. That's okay. Jesus said love your enemies. Go home and love your wife. Love, in this sense, is an act of the will, and we could easily apply this when we start thinking about it to any number of relationships, couldn't we? Not just your wife, or your husband, or your children, but even your ex, the one who betrayed you, your boss, somebody who's hurt you, Democrats, <laughs> Republicans, Yankees, Mets, and Giants fans, all of these people. We just can't escape this love command. It's the Christian duty to love everyone. No exceptions. And Jesus isn't pulling this out of thin air. The Old Testament had a lot of hints about this that the uh, teachers of the law were conveniently ignoring. Leviticus 19, the same passage where you get the message to love your neighbor, says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So you had to love foreigners. Exodus 23 says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. I find this interesting. I actually found a wallet out front yesterday on the way into the office, and I did go and return it over there. So, you know, he wasn't my enemy, but, you know, it's like an ox or a donkey laying there in the ditch, right? But I like how he has to say, you shall refrain from leaving him with it, like a double negative. But the thing is, the temptation would be to leave him there and suffer. And it's like watching a guy with car trouble that you can't stand, right? But Jesus you know, is pointing out here, this is in the Old Testament, you can't engage in schadenfreude. You're not even allowed to do that. you got to go help that bum. Proverbs 25, which is what uh, Paul is quoting in Romans 12, says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And of course, the next verse tells him it's so that you can heap coals on his head, right? But the principle still stands that God explicitly says to actively love your enemy. Help him. Feed him. Pour him a drink. 
And now Jesus adds that perhaps the best way to love your enemy is to pray for them. That's the first order of business. And that means actually praying for them, not just saying that as a passive-aggressive way of ending a debate. You know who you are. But love means wishing them well, asking God to bless them and prosper them, and ultimately to save them if they're not saved already. And you don't need to feel all the feels when you do this. You can even be honest with God that you're emotionally committed to this person's destruction, but you can ask him to change that. Feelings of love often follow acts of love. One of the fastest ways to heal a relationship is to commit it, commit to going through the motions. I think that's true with coworkers, siblings, neighbors, and even in marriage. It is not unbiblical to fake it until you make it. You almost have to do that. That's the only way to follow this command. Now, you may think that this sounds difficult and maybe doesn't sound like it's worth the trouble, but Jesus sets the stakes pretty high. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Well, that's a pretty big prize. Or, to look at it the other way, it's a pretty big thing to lose. But the sons and daughters of the living God should be characterized by our love for each other and even for our enemies. In other words, unbelievers should be shocked by who we're praying for. Our prayer list should include some scandalous names. And Jesus goes a step further and gives some logical arguments for the command. Why should we do this? He says, because, verse 45, second half, he says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So this is an argument for what theologians call common grace. God could destroy all pagans and all wicked people in an instant. He could do that. Yet he continues to send them the same sunshine that you enjoy and the same rain that waters the crops that feed you and, more importantly, feeds the meat that we eat. And you can extend this logic to any good thing that humanity enjoys. Beauty, health, love, adventure, delicious food, because he didn't need to make food taste good, but he did. Uh, music, reading, walks in the park, children. All of these are evidence of God's kindness, and it's not limited to his people. It's not a mistake or an oversight that God allows even unbelievers to enjoy these things. He does this because in some sense he loves this world. And that doesn't mean that everybody is going to be saved, but it does mean that he treats his enemies a lot better than we do. God's general kindness to humanity is proof that he is generous and patient in a way that we are not. He extends the argument still further. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? This is a fair point and well taken. If we only love those who love us, we won't functionally look any different from the pagans or even tax collectors. Because even IRS agents say hello to each other. They don't say hello to the rest of us because they don't answer the phones. <laughs> 
But it's interesting that Jesus mentions greeting people because we don't even like saying hello to people we don't like, do we? Shoot, I don't even like saying hello to my neighbors I do like half the time. But this seems like a little bit of a warning to introverts, and I bring that up saying this, knowing that the this particular church is full of introverts. Um, <laughs> but being an introvert is not an excuse for not greeting people. Uh, if Jesus says this applies to your enemies, then it certainly applies to, say, visitors at church and to other members you don't usually talk to or pray for or with. Maybe it means not always sitting with the same people. But no matter how you slice it, there should be something different about God's children. The way we interact with people, and even the people we choose to interact with, not just the rejects of society, that's important too, but even the people who are not rejects, the people who are celebrated by society for hating us. Do we greet them warmly? Do we pray for them? Do we treat them like our neighbors? And if not, then we don't look any different than the world around us. Jesus closes the argument with the ultimate coup de grace. He says, you therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, okay. Why didn't I think of that? God says multiple times in Scripture to be holy, for I am holy. That's bad enough, but now Jesus is demanding perfection. As if we aren't already feeling inadequate enough. I mean, he can't possibly have such high expectations, right? Has he even met Peter, right? That's his all-star, right? I'm thinking if Peter's your standard, I'm going to go ahead and say this is a kind of a non-starter as a command. And I can't say much to make it easier except to say that the word perfect here is teleos, which can be translated as finished, complete, or mature, or having reached the end. I don't think we can live, it up, live up to it no matter how you slice this definition and translation, though. But I want you to notice that when Jesus speaks of his father's perfection, he speaks in terms of his love. In Jesus' mind, nowhere has God displayed his perfection more clearly and brilliantly than in his selfless, unfathomable, complete, mature, and finished love. God is perfect in every way, but his love is where his perfection is on its most glorious display. And if we want to be like our creator, if we want to reflect him the way a child reflects their parents, then we should want to imitate God and his love. Every day, in every raindrop, every time the sun comes up and goes down again in a glorious blaze of color, that is God loving a world of lost souls more than you and I do. So Jesus says, if you want to keep God's commands, if you want to be perfect, then perfection begins and ends in love. He sum, uh, Paul sums it up in Romans 5.10 this way. He says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In other words, if love is your default setting, then keeping the law is almost simple. We've said before that the laws are all connected, and we've discussed that in the terms of, you know, if you break one commandment, then you automatically end up breaking others. But it works in reverse, too, in that if you could actually keep any law, you would end up keeping all of them. And love, Jesus says, is the key. If I truly love my neighbor, I will not sin against him. 
If I actively love my neighbor, I won't lie to him or steal from him or covet his wife. Love is the fulfillment of the law, and true godly love is never a sin. But Jesus calls us to love everybody, even our enemies. And the most countercultural thing we can do is to mimic God by loving our enemies. It means having enemies, but living as if you don't. And loving the ones that you hate. And inviting them to have neighbor status. It means asking people, in the words of Mr. Rogers, won't you be my neighbor? can't believe I'm saying that. But Mr. Rogers was right. That silly song of his is actually a good picture of how Jesus wants us to think of our enemies. To say to them, even if our feelings don't follow, I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in the neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Most of us can think of neighbors we'd like to get away from. And we want fewer neighbors, if anything. But Jesus says to bring them all in and treat everyone like a neighbor, even the one who hates you and hurts you. Now, as we get to the end of this, I'm going to say, of course, that we don't know how to do this. We don't keep this command. We won't keep this command. We don't love our enemies. We don't even love our neighbors very well. We don't pray for our enemies as we should. We don't greet them if we can help it. And we are clearly not perfect in any sense of the word. But the good news remains as we close out this chapter that Jesus is not ultimately talking about you. He is the original son of the father. He is perfect as his father is perfect. And he loved his enemies even to the point of death. Paul says in Romans... God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, continuous, ongoing, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The point is, beloved, that there is no Christmas, there is no Good Friday, there is no Easter, there is no Ascension Day, there is no Pentecost, no Holy Spirit being poured out, no church, no Bible, and no hope. There is no gospel unless Jesus loves his enemies first. Because that's what we were. And left in our natural state, it's where we would still be. But Jesus came to reconcile a people to himself. We were his enemies, and yet he has chosen to love us like a neighbor, and more than that, like a son and a daughter of the high king. Reconciliation starts with his love, not ours. So love your enemies, and love them before they're lovable. Not because you can do it perfectly, and not because it'll earn you anything, or because it's even guaranteed to change them. Do it because Jesus tells you to do it, and because it will set you apart from the world, and that is how we imitate our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful, Lord, for, the, for this Sermon on the Mount, Lord, even though it is such a difficult teaching and getting more and more difficult. But we thank you again that 
your son who delivered this sermon, Lord, that he is the fulfillment of these very demands. We thank you that you loved us when we were enemies. Lord, help us to love our enemies. We don't know how to do it. We don't have it in us, Lord. We need your spirit to be at work in us and to help us to do it. Lord, we need help loving our neighbors. We don't really want to. Lord, help us. Help us to be like you. Help us to be like Jesus. But we thank you that doing this well is not where our hope is, Lord, that our hope is in the perfect and completed love of you through your Son. Thank you for saving us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all bless.